Web3 has just like absolutely put a rocket into my inspiration. It's been incredible. Welcome to Morning Tea and Torture with Tapir One, a podcast with no agenda and no expectations. We're just having a cup of tea with friends, talking about digital art and other creative ways to, well, waste your time. Now, here's your host, Tapir One. Call him Tio. My guest today is David Fares, an ocean-obsessed artist from Australia. David uses his drone to capture stunning images and videos of the sea, the sky and storms that rage between them. His main subjects are waves, whales and surfers, ideally combining at least two of them together in one piece. He creates truly new light visuals from above. You can find his works on several digital art platforms, among them Foundation and Super Rare. David is also a mental health advocate, providing ongoing support to the Web3 community. Today, David is here to share a bit about his life and his art. Everybody, please welcome David Fares. Good day, mate. Stoked to finally have you here. Thanks, Tio. It's great to be here, mate. Appreciate it. Great. We could make it work today. Definitely. David, how do you manage to capture such amazing photos while everything in Australia is upside down? <laughs> That's a very good question. Lots of fitness and exercise to keep my abs strong so that I can keep a firm rule over gravity. Oh, yeah. I can't see that. <laughs> <laughs> So you used to work as a creative director for a marketing agency. When and how did you become a photographer? Yeah, so it's interesting. I picked up a camera many years ago as a kid. And I think a lot of people who've gotten into photography have had the same experience. But I didn't pursue it as a means for, of art until probably 2000. And 10, I'm going to say. I can't be sure, actually, the date. But I've always loved cameras. I've always had a, had a thing about how cameras work and how people manage to get such amazing photos to me was just mind-blowing and something that I thought I could never do. You know, it was sort of out of my reach. And then I got exposed, as you said, as a creative director in the industry through working with photographers and working with other creatives that were doing exactly that. And so I got to bump shoulders with some really talented guys who knew what they were doing. And I kind of just started nerding out on camera gear and photography and realized that it was something that I was absolutely obsessed with. And, you know, it was quite interesting to find a passion so much later on in life. You know, I've always been an artist. I've always loved creativity, drawing, painting, and music, lots of different outlets. And then to have this now later on is, I think, a real gift. It's sort of like reignited my passion for art and creativity in a way. So, yeah, that's how I, I got into it. It was through working with people who were very good at what they do. That's a good way to start. And also you're living in a country with a lot of really great landscapes and like the ocean next to you. So it provides a lot of motives, I would say. Absolutely. And what made you then choose aerial or drone photography? So while I was working as a, a creative director, I started to go out, branch out on my own. I accumulated a, a modest startup kit of gear to do, basically do videography. I became obsessed with video and I wanted to make films. So I started out freelancing as a videographer, which was a bit sneaky because I was employed full time and I was kind of using the weekends to book clients, basically making out that I was already an established videographer 
they didn't know, but I really had no idea what I was doing. And they were happy with the outcome of each project. Luckily, I was getting paid. But along the road on that journey, I realized that for real estate and for certain jobs, I needed a drone. And that was the new thing. Everyone was getting into drones and aerial shots to increase the level of their productions. So I made that my goal, saved up my money. Each project I, I didn't take any money from. I just invested into more gear and more setup for the company. And yeah, the drone was purchased, which I started using to film projects. And part of it, getting out and using it and learning the equipment was just getting up at sunrise in the morning, heading out and using the drone to get beautiful captures of the oceanscapes that I love doing anyway. And I fell in love with it. I realized that aerial photography was actually an art form in itself. And I just became obsessed from that point. And just every single day was just drone sunrise for almost a year straight. I think it was, yeah, like I said, an absolute addiction. It's sort of just developed from there. It's grown from there. So we're all glad you didn't stay in real estate videography, (laughs) but you're still doing this? Yeah, so I get I have some clients that I do construction sites and a lot of paid aerial jobs, which is great because it, it subsidizes the gear, thank goodness, because it's not cheap. <laughs> But yeah, it is a great creative outlet as well, which is really I'm really fortunate to have that, I think. Yeah, I like it. I like that you're I guess a drone is just a logical step for you. As you just said, you were nerding out about equipment, so a drone should be the next logical step for anyone nerding about <laughs> tech and photography and videography. And I really like that you were, would you agree, fake it until you make it? So was your approach at the weekends with your first clients? You said they didn't know that you had no experience at all, but this is how we all start, right? That is 100% my whole career. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I have managed to, I feel like pull a Swifty on the whole creative industry and just fumble my way through to a point where I know what I'm doing. And it's taught me that when you feel afraid of something and you feel really kind of that imposter syndrome, it's like, just go for it. Just do it anyway, because it's pretty much how everyone does it, right? Like It doesn't matter how much training you've got. That first job, you're still fresh out of the box. You're still scared. You're still going to make mistakes, all that stuff. So I'm not a superhero or anything. I'm just an average dude. And I've been man- I've managed to just throw myself into some situations and, and come out on top. And that's what I've sort of learned along the way. So Yeah, I guess most of us, as I used to say, or usually say, are just winging it here in Web3 <laughs> or digital art. And not many would admit to it, but I don't think this is something that you shouldn't disclose. It's it's fine just to be open about this, and this will encourage others to choose this path and see where, where we come out at the end. We really liked it. How did you find about NFTs, and how did you finally enter this crazy space? Yeah, so that's interesting. So my brother, he's 10 years younger than me. And being from that generation, he's very into, I think through gaming, he found out about NFTs. And he found out through about crypto from his friends. I think they had a part in Litecoin developing that technology. And so I got into crypto via him from a very early stage where he sent me a whole lot of info and was just like, mate, this tech is incredible. And so I jumped in and really believed in the technology and I saw the power of what could be achieved through Web3 at an early stage before it was even really very well known at all. You know, there was a lot of jokes about it being stupid. There was a pizza bought with one Bitcoin, that sort of thing. Famously, yes. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of famous stuff that came out about it, but people didn't understand it. And 
Unfortunately, I didn't have a lot to invest. We were living very frugally at the time, my wife and I, and she was very nervous about taking any money that we had in any other superannuation or any other parts of our portfolios where we didn't have anything to invest, basically. I did get into it and then I saw the growth and was like, okay, wow, this is crazy. And then when my brother told me about NFTs, I was very big on the Instagram platform, sharing my work, quite prolific there where I would post every day connect with the community quite strongly. I was seeing good growth through that app at the time. And he kept sort of bugging me saying, you know, there's this thing going on that people are selling photos for thousands of dollars. And I was like, it just sounds, I don't know. I just couldn't get my head around it. I thought it just sounds fake. It doesn't sound real. No one's selling photos. Like people are getting their photos ripped off. If anything, I couldn't get my headspace out of web two, basically. And I wish I had really paid attention at that point because I think I could have got into a a situation where, you know, I was much more prolific in the Web3 community earlier on if I had have listened to my brother. He'll probably hold that over me for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I jumped in sort of mid-2021 finally when I saw everything going crazy and I got to experience the tail end of that bull run, which was fantastic. It was just such an exciting time for art and photography particularly. And so I've been here ever since, just loving it, just connecting with everyone like yourself and so many like-minded individuals in the community that really believe not only in the technology, but in art and the the power that artists have in this in our society, which is great. Exactly. Absolutely. 100% agree here. And don't be too hard on your former self. You made all the decisions that you made with the information that you had available back then. And it's always, uh, of course, as one says, hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> so all the decisions that you made brought you here today. And perhaps, who knows what would have happened if you had made a different decision and, and jumped in earlier. So I don't think that you would be the same person and you would just have more money, for example, as you were alluding to. It would be much different and perhaps not to the better. Who knows? And also... Shout out to all the sisters and brothers out there who brought their siblings to NFTs. And you're not the only one who had a brother. And I had Benito a couple of episodes before, and his sister was the one who brought him to NFTs. So shout out to sisters and brothers out there. <laughs> I like that. So David, as a creative director, did you have a team of people who reported to you? So assistants, creatives, and so on? Yeah, so I had a small team of people. I was in a very boutique agency. I came from a massive media company, which I now work with again. I've sort of left the small agency where I got to promote it to creative director. But yes, I worked with other teams. It's been a wild ride. The last 14 years, 15 years as a creative in media and marketing. When you get that responsibility where you have to report to the higher-ups and also manage a team as well, it's a lot of pressure. It's It's a lot of stress. And it's something I'm really proud that I achieved in my career. It's it's a goal I had from the very beginning when I started, when I realized that I could do design as a career. But I am glad that I made the decision to go out on my own as well, because it was it was starting to lose its shininess. It was starting to, I wasn't getting fulfillment. I'd got to the level I wanted to. I'd achieved all of the goals I had in mind. And then once there, I realized that it wasn't everything I'd imagined it to be. And it was really just a lot more responsibility and less time for the things that I wanted to do. And I decided that it wasn't for me anymore. So going out on my own has allowed me to have a bit more flexibility. The pressure is definitely higher. The stress is definitely higher. 
there's no illusion that it's easier. But if, for instance, I can work till 1am on a project if I want to, if I'm feeling creative and then have the next morning to do whatever I want and go for a surf and enjoy my time how I want to enjoy it, that's the biggest plus for me. And that frees me up to be creative, I find, because mentally, if you're locked into a set time every day, reporting to people, having meetings all day, it doesn't work for me personally, where I, I find that I'm kind of very tired and worn out at the end of the day. Last thing I want to do is be creating any art for myself or sitting down and, and enjoying creative process. It's like I just watch some TV and go to bed and start and do it all again. Whereas now I find my time is still very finite, but having the flexibility allows me more time to take advantage, if that makes sense. It does. And yeah, after 15 years, it's a very brave step to step away from, from corporate life. I think there may be a lot of people out there who are still working in corporate and who may not have the guts yet, perhaps, and need some encouragement, like from you and your, hearing your story. So how did it feel abandoning this work environment and becoming your own boss? It was very scary. It was a very terrifying time for me because two weeks after I gave my notice and I'd made my decision, my wife and I had discussed it for months leading up. She backed me 100% and gave me the courage to make the decision because I just thought it wasn't even an option for me. You know, it was a mental barrier that I wasn't able to break through on my own, if I'm honest. Again, my brother, my, my savior, Joel, who I have to shout out, he started his own aircon business just without even telling me, he just said, oh yeah, I've gone out on my own. I've got my own company now. I've just decided. And I was like, he's 10 years younger than me. And I was like, hang on, what? Hey, you can do that? That was just kind of like, <laughs> my, my whole mindset just exploded. <laughs> and then I realized that he's right. There's never going to be a right time. There's always going to be barriers and hurdles and fears. And I just decided that that was how I had to do it. I just had to trust in the process that I was going to be okay and that my family weren't going to be homeless and we were going to, I was going to be able to draw on all of my experience and all of my network and resources and build something up from the ground up. And that's, it's sort of what's happened. Like it's taken a long time. I'm still not there. As I said, two weeks after I gave my notice, COVID came along and everything shut down. You couldn't film in Australia. It was like, you weren't allowed within 15 meters of people. So how could you work on a film set? So I then proceeded to kind of spiral a little bit mentally, which was very scary. I haven't really experienced that before in my life. The pressure and the intensity of the weight of supporting my family on my shoulders and then not really thinking I was going to be able to because I just couldn't, no matter how hard I wanted to work, the work wasn't there. So yeah, that became a very scary, dark transition at the beginning. But we had the government subsidies here in Australia, which helped a lot. That got me through and it allowed me to sort of build, you know, I guess like we're doing right now in the bear market, there was a bear market in film and creativity in really any work, I guess, at that time for everyone around the world. It was a massive bear market. So I decided to build my website. I decided to email clients and chat with them about how we were going to get through and maybe work post-COVID lockdown. And I just set about focusing on what I could do in that time. And that helped a lot because it kept my mindset a bit more positive, even though it was, wasn't great. And then, yeah, from there, things just got a little bit better and a little bit better. And I, and I owe it to my wife as well. She stood by me and just backed me and said, look, it's not your fault. You don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. And, and here I am now, come through it, 
And I realized that if I can get through COVID and run a company that's still successful, I can pretty much succeed in any market. I think that's kind of what I've drawn out of it is a real strength and determination to keep going. Absolutely. You had to learn it the hard way, unfortunately, right? Very much, yeah. It wasn't an enjoyable experience, but it, it definitely made me stronger. Yeah. And having the support and the backing of your wife is also very important. I can imagine that was a very scary time. But again, if you had stayed in a corporate structure, who knows, you may have been hit by a layoff, for example, during this time. So you don't know what would have happened. And it's good good advice by your wife not to worry about things you can't change and you can't do anything for. So yeah, but you grinded your way through this all. And this is very valuable experience that you've had for people who only experience good times. It is going to be difficult once once it hits them, something will hit. And you started this way. So kudos to that. An observation, perhaps several Web3 artists that I've spoken with over the past couple of months had been working at marketing agencies like you before they turned around to become full-blown digital artists. What do you think? Does working in marketing make artists or are artists drawn to marketing? Because that's perhaps the next best thing to being fully independent as an artist. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I like this question. It's a bit of both. Like for me personally, I've always been an artist. I started illustration when I was eight years old, I can remember. And I always, that's how I identified myself. I realized that I had a little bit of an edge over others in that regard. I could draw very easily and it came naturally and I, and I loved it. And other kids were just like, wow, how do you do that? You know, and so it became part of my identity very early on. Marketing came after as a way I wouldn't say that it's my passion. It's something that I jumped into because that's what was the option. That was what it was. That's the only thing I could find available to artists to make a, a real living out of their talents and their pro and, and what they do. It's almost, I don't know, I have a pang of guilt about it, but I, I've never really liked the practice of marketing and selling products to people that they don't need, if that makes sense. <laughs> It's a double-edged sword because like a lot of the stuff that I would work in and the companies that I would work for are really against my values and my morals. And I felt like I was selling myself out a lot of the time, which was really hard for me, being a, someone who genuinely does want to help others and see the, the planet thrive. And I'm very passionate about ocean conservation and conservation itself, working in industries that are actively not doing that looking after us and, and our best interests it was very tough for me to be in that industry but it was a necessity because i needed to work and i needed to build a career in something and i tried a lot of things i tried all of the trades you can poke a stick at i've done electrical plumbing construction everything i, I was trying to find my way for a long time and then i got exposed to a creative who was running a web design business and that kind of blew me away i was like oh Oh, so you're, because he was a drawer as well. We connected through art and chatting about art. He'd draw patterns on surfboards. I thought were really cool. And I was doing, you know, concreting or something at the time. And, and he said, no, no, I run a business doing web design. And I was like, wait, you can do that? Like you can actually do art for a job. And so then uh, from there, later, this later on in life, I was about 25. I'd been through school, all of that. And I decided to go back and train again. And just that's when I found graphic design. As I said, I, I'm proud of the career I built. I worked really, really hard to get to the level I did. And that's sort of my ethic. I've always done that in anything I do. But there was always that thing in the background of like, this isn't really art. This is just work. Like, So I think to answer your question, marketing, it's like a great way for an artist to use their talents to climb a corporate structure. 
but I don't know if it makes artists. I think that's an interesting question. I'm sure there are people who got into marketing and design and then probably found that they had a talent and a flair for art and came out of that thinking, oh, I'm going to try art now. But for me, it was very much like I've always been an artist and the marketing industry was just something that I got into so that I was able to try to use my talent and my passion for creativity while building a career. I like that. Yeah, perhaps it's just a good launchpad marketing agencies for artists to discover that they are artists and perhaps because it touches so many so many different areas where artists also work, videography, photography, illustration, painting, whatever, music. So perhaps it just awakens the artists and a lot of people. Just just an observation. So because many people I was speaking with were working at these agencies before. I like that. Let's talk about your art. This is why we're here after all, right? <laughs> so some of your most amazing shots feature whales, they're in video or on photo. Do you plan these shots ahead? And if yes, how do you plan these? Yeah, the whale shots I'm obsessed with. Um, that's become a real obsession for me because when I got into drones, I saw an image of, of a whale over in WA. I think it was Jackson Roberts, uh, another aerial photographer, and he captured a whale mother and a calf next to each other in this beautiful pristine water and i was like i need to get a shot of that that is insane like it would just blew my mind and so i started to research and work out how i could get that in australia and where the areas were and i thought i was going to have to fly over to wa which is a six hour flight from sydney and so i began to to do all my research and plan stuff out and then i realized that there was a whole scene in sydney of guys capturing humpbacks on their way up the coast There's a migration every year. It happens once a year up up from the Antarctica and they go and they have their, their calves up in the warmer waters in Queensland and then they swim back down the coast. So they come up. They're actually going to start this month, the next migration. I'm really excited. It kicks off sort of mid to late May. So that's just so pumped for that. It's going to be great. And then, yeah, I just connected with other aerial artists and There's a whole community on Facebook and online that basically keep track of them and, and work out where they are and, you know, how many groups there are at a certain time. And you can go online and find out and then you can drive to that location and hopefully capture something incredible. In saying that, though, it is very hard. The whales, <laughs> they don't sit and model for you like a person. They do whatever they, they want. <laughs> Trying to find them on the screen. I've been out countless times. I can't tell you how many times. They're right there. I can see them. They're spouting. They're in the ocean. I fly the drone out and I cannot see them. I cannot find them. And they've already dived. <laughs> yeah. And they're gone. They're out of there or whatever. Or you have to fly back because your battery is about to, to die and they're still there, but you still haven't found them. Yeah. There's been some frustrating moments, that's for sure. But when you get that shot, like the one you're talking about with the whale, the one that you were talking about with the breach, that shot, that's a once in a lifetime shot, I believe. I think that's been a shot I've tried to get for five years now so i was stoked on that one yeah we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a bit i guess so yeah i can imagine it's going to be difficult to be in the right place at the right time and those whale tracking groups sound intriguing so perhaps you could send me an invite to one of those i would be interested to take part there and just hang out and see so and one thing i saw that you put a lot of care into is the descriptions that you put on your artworks too so they're beautifully written short stories. Let's take what you just mentioned, The Breach, for example. This is a very powerful piece that you sold on Super Rare, December 22, 
for three years, I guess it was. So it shows a humpback whale mid-jump just as it hits the water. So I encourage everyone just to first take a look at this piece. We're going to link to it in the show notes. It's amazing. And then read the description of this particular shot because David is taking us right into the story about how the shot came to be and what he felt. It's just brilliant. And I'm just going to quote a short passage out of it. The mother showing her baby how to roll, slap the surface with her fins and how to breach and dive. My heart was pounding in my chest. My hands were trembling as I struggled to keep the drone smooth and steady and the whales in the center of my camera's screen. So the whole description is much longer and it's just beautifully written. Can you walk us perhaps through your process of crafting such a powerful description for your work? Yeah, the art of storytelling is something I love as well. It is an art form, I believe. I think there's people out there that dedicate their lives to the art of, of word, and I really admire that. I think it's um, it's a beautiful way to express feelings and emotions and, and ideas and concepts, and I really enjoy putting my hand to crafting a nice description for art. Like this whole NFT thing, at the start, it was like a... It was like a labor almost. It was like a bit nerve wracking. And when I got into it and started to mint collections, and th I realized that that's, that's part of it as well. You know, it's not just the photo that you're posting. And here's my photo. It's like you get to really express who you are, what you felt, what was happening at the time. And it's there forever, right? So you get to relive it each time as an artist. You go back to that piece and read that. It's like a journal entry in time that you might not, you might not remember that in 10 years as vividly as what you did at the moment of capture and, and when you had that fresh in your mind. So I really enjoy the fact that I can do that. I can sit down and, and spend the, the time to do that. I've always been into that as well. I <laughs> It's quite a bit embarrassing now as an older dad. I was rapping. I was like a an MC back in the day. So I used to write rhymes and, and craft rap tracks with a bunch of mates as a young young guy. And we'd spend every Friday night on the microphone and recording hip-hop <laughs> so wordsmith is kind of in my vernacular which is in my portfolio and yeah i really enjoy it it's great fun i still do write a few rhymes for the kids now and again and i'm sure they think i'm a bit weird <laughs> <laughs> it's good my wife's got a bachelor of communications as well she's a very good writer loves loves writing and storytelling and so often i'll show her my descriptions and she'll comment and we kind of bounce off each other in that as well we share that passion together so it's really nice oh it's great there's a lot of great things to unpack here so <laughs> yeah some artists never put any descriptions on their works and never explain their work either so but i'm fine with both ways so some say yeah storytelling is such an important part to connect with the piece and some say yeah let the piece speak for itself but i think yeah both are right in their own views i think it can give the viewer guidance perhaps storytelling but then again it's not on the nose what you're doing so everyone still has room to interpret the pieces and i like what you said that this is some kind of a diary for you for yourself so your nfts not only the pictures but also what you experience there so this is your way of making a diary of your experiences really really like that And the other thing is that from now on, for the rest of our interview, David, you will have to wrap every answer to my questions, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I could. That'd be cool. <laughs> I wish I had known this before. So <laughs> I'll show you some of my old tracks and you can, you can have a laugh. <laughs>
Definitely, I would love it. I would love it. So, <laughs> yeah, and most of your artworks descriptions not only contain stories about how the piece came to be, but also contain stories about your life, how events and those were not always pleasant events shaped you to be the person that you are today. So again, really recommend going out and find David's works and read those descriptions, especially when you're struggling in life or having a hard time. And I can tell you, you will find support in David's descriptions of his art alone. Which brings me to the next topic. You have become a mental health advocate, I would say. On your website, newvisuallight.com, you are writing about your experiences with burnout in December 2021 and your subsequent struggles. So you identifying, among other pieces, uh, Twitter as one of the main culprits, which turned into some kind of an addiction with sleep deprivation, which affected your overall health. So let me ask you, how did you recognize that you were experiencing a burnout? So at first I didn't. I didn't recognize it at all. It caught me by surprise completely. It wasn't until I was having what I'd probably describe as a bit of a nervous breakdown that I realized that it had been affecting me quite negatively. And then my wife helped me through it. And she said, also said some things to me of like, I've literally been carrying the whole family and you've just been online the whole time. Like she didn't say anything to me because she knew how important it was me for me to build my Web3 presence and my NFT experience with the community. She understood how passionate I was about it, but she really did a lot of the heavy lifting and got me through to a point where it just actually wasn't helping me because I was not, I didn't have a healthy approach. So yeah, I had a real meltdown and I couldn't really, it just got on top of me all of a sudden. It was like a, a switch almost flicked and I couldn't handle even looking at a computer screen or a phone screen, it would hurt. It just hurt me. It was like a physical reaction. And it was like my, my body and, and mind just saying, no, I'm done. This is enough now. And I kept persisting. I was like, no, this is ridiculous. What's wrong with me? You know, I was so stubborn. I kept trying to push through this pain barrier just to stay online and connect with my friends. And, and that didn't end well. I was a shell of a person. So it was around Christmas time of 2021. I don't, remember much of that Christmas with my family because I wasn't present. I was just mentally, I was gone kind of thing. And that was a real eye-opener for me that it could get to that point. That it could actually take me down so heavily. I'm someone I consider pretty strong and tough mentally. I've been through a lot in my life. I've been through very heavy, heavy stuff as an adolescent and got through it just through determination and being me. So this was a real eye-opener that I was defeated by this whole digital kind of lifestyle that I'd gotten into. And so the whole experience, it really taught me a lesson in that you have to be conscious and present for yourself and you have to really be careful of being too heavily involved in the digital world. And that's something that I'm glad I learned because it'll give me experience with my kids and I'll be able to guide them a little bit and be a little bit more conscious of their experiences. You know, I'm, I'm sure we're moving into an age where that's going to get more and more prevalent and the metaverse growing, virtual reality, all these things are going to become much more heavy than what we're experiencing now. So it's just something for me to be conscious of for myself and also for my family going forward that we do need mental breaks and we do need to go and, as people say, touch grass, experience the real world, get offline 
regularly and have breaks. And that's that's been a healthy experience and a healthy learning lesson for me. Yeah, you made your way back out of this black hole. And so how do you how do you approach it today? Like do you have like screen time that you set yourself or put a schedule in your calendar and you abide by it? Or how do you control this so that you're not falling back into that hole? Yeah, I don't have strict measures in place or anything of like reminders or, or time allowments or anything. As I mentioned before about stubbornness, if I did that, I would probably fight against it and it would be a counterintuitive experience. Um, but I, I'm lucky now that I've recognized that I was neglecting my family in a way in that period where I was so heavily, I thought I was doing it for my family, ironically that now I at 5 p.m. or whenever the kids are due to be picked up from daycare in the afternoon, I shut down the computer. I take off my phone stays downstairs and I go up and I will bath the kids, experience putting them to bed and making sure that I'm in their lives for that brief period of time in the day. Luckily I get to work from home. So I get I get that. It's a real blessing. And I realized that I was wasn't taking advantage of that enough. So that's a really good one. It allows me to just slow down at the end of the day and and sort of like stop for a brief period of the day where I'm not online at all and I'm just I'm present with them and I'm able to it, that's been a real hard adjustment for me because I do like to just be go 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 all the time but I'm getting better at it and it's it's helping me through what that struggle was with the addiction I guess of being online too much oh yeah I get it so there's one thing I love about Web3 is that people in our community are willing to open up about their vulnerabilities and their struggles. And one thing I admire even more is that these people, and that definitely includes you, are generously helping others who struggle to find their balance again. So I would say this is unique in our community. Thank you for, for opening up here about this. I can imagine that it's not easy for you just to speak about these uh, things all so thanks and yeah if anyone struggles reach out to perhaps community members or speak with your family <laughs> at first yeah they may see signs you don't see perhaps so let's return a bit to your art on february 27th you wrote in a tweet chasing storms with a drone is the ultimate rush for me and chasing them out over the ocean takes things to a whole new level i'm sure One day I'll live to regret risking it for the shot, but I'm truly hooked now. So, David, <laughs> tell us mere mortals a bit more about what it means to chase a storm on the ocean with a drone. Doesn't Australia already provide enough perils? <laughs> yeah, it is an intense experience. Once I did it for the first time, I'm like I said, very hooked now. It is, it is pretty crazy. I know there's a lot of other people out there that are sort of doing it as well but they're not on the Web3 space. But Tim, as you know, you've interviewed Timbo Slice. He's the same as me. He's He loves to get storm shots and the moody vibes and by the ocean, you know, it's, it's hard to explain. It's actually hard to put into words because there's a real electricity in the air. Even if there's not a lightning storm, a storm itself gives you this real charge and adrenaline naturally, you know, like you feel the air pressure shift, the wind, And it's sort of like there's almost a little bit of danger just by being outdoors in that moment. You throw in flying a small helicopter, a small quadcopter in the sky that could be blown out to sea at any moment that costs a good amount of money. 
<laughs> and the adrenal levels go very high very quickly. So, yeah, I must admit a self-confessed adrenaline addict. And so it sort of is natural now that I'm very much into that as well. You know, I do a lot of extreme sport sort of stuff and it feels like another level of extreme sport to me. <laughs> and I get to create art from it, which is very cool. It is definitely. And are you are you going out on a surfboard? Are you swimming in the storm? Are you using a boat? Are you standing on the shore when you're out there chasing storms? So with the drone, it's from land. I do. I stand very close to the shoreline, so I've got a good line of sight to the drone and where I'm where I'm filming. And some of my shots, I'll actually set up my second camera to shoot the sky alone because the the drama of the sky is very hard to capture with a drone. Effectively, it's it's a set camera with a set focal point and. It's a very wide angle and everything. You can't really be that selective with what the details you want to capture. So a lot of my storm work, I will set up a second camera to capture the sky alone that I can then sub into the drone capture as well as a composite. It just gives it more drama. It really captures that feeling and the mood of being there in that moment for me, which is really important in my art. I feel like being able to express the feeling at the time through my art is is a big part of it so yeah i think being on land is much safer than being out on the water with a drone for sure a lot of guys film from boats it's very hard though because the boat doesn't stay completely stationary i've done it once for a client who wanted to film their boat went out on the boat in this harbor and then i flew behind getting footage the taking off is fine landing the drone on a moving boat even if it's very slow and steady like what you think is steady It's nearly impossible. Like, it's so difficult. I'm sure there's guys out there who do it all the time and they're probably laughing, probably laugh at that. But as a one-off experience, trying to catch this drone out of the sky in a moving boat, it was very hairy stuff. I kept thinking I was going to chop my head off with the propellers. <laughs> right. If you don't want to lose your hand, don't try this at home. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So some of your pieces are, are composites then because you simply can't shoot the way that you want in life, so to speak, with your drone. So, yeah, but it's fine. I mean, there are many composite artists out there. And I guess also Web3 has somehow lightened the mood a bit here. Um, because some people may say that these aren't really photographs if you montage them together. But I would say it doesn't matter at all, especially if you're shooting the sky yourself and the rest of the scene with the drone and just adding those two together to make a beautiful piece. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think composites are an art form in themselves. And I think a lot of the communication around that for photographers who don't do it, it's just a lack of understanding of how it works. You know, they could see it as they see it as like a threat to their own style and their own art form a lot. There's a bit of a negative sentiment that goes. But it's nice to see, like you said, in Web3, it becoming more accepted and more understood and treated as a legitimate art form, which is great because that's that's what it is. It's I respect people who go out and will get a raw photo of a scene and it's they'll do minimal editing to it and it looks beautiful. I think that's fantastic. But it doesn't mean that that's more of an art form than anything else. That's right. I mean, Photoshop makes it pretty easy to swap out skies, but still to get it right is, is a lot of work. So it's not easy to do this and to make it look awesome like you do. So can you perhaps describe a particularly memorable or challenging shoot that you have done? Yeah, so <laughs> the storm photography is a, is a good one, is a good example, because I first time I tried it was by accident. 
<laughs> I took off and I was just trying to get some waves and a beautiful sunset. And then a storm blew in from the south that I wasn't prepared for. I hadn't really checked the weather. I just saw the sunset about to go really colourful and I thought, oh, great. I pulled over and unpacked the drone and got out. Usually I'll, if I'm heading out, I'll do a little bit of research on the weather, what's happening, you know, when the sun's going down, that sort of stuff. But this day I hadn't done any of that. And this massive storm blew in from the south <laughs> and it basically took my drone and just propelled it north by about three kilometres very quickly. I had the stick pointed back trying to fly into shore and it was still going backwards, full full thrust forward, and it was still being pushed backwards. And I didn't really know what to do. I went into a state of panic because I was like, I'm going to lose my drone here. It was like, here goes my drone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it was really, really scary. Long story short, it was it was a good like, 20 minutes of pure just dread and, and and panic. But I managed to fly north with the storm. I realized that I was getting nowhere. I had to quickly turn back around, fly ahead of the storm north, come into land. So at least if I could get to land, if it fell out of the sky, the battery died, I could find it later with the GPS. That was sort of the goal. Achieve that. And then actually was able to fly it back to where I was with enough battery power. But while that happened, just because it didn't want it to be too simple for me, the controller disconnected. I couldn't see where I was flying. Oh, no, of course. <laughs> I'd survived the storm, but then I had a completely black screen. I had to guide myself back to where I was with no visual at whatsoever. And eventually I managed, because I knew the rough direction of where I was from the map and I was already flying that way. Luckily, I heard the little mosquito buzzing in the distance and realized that I was on the right path and it it came into view finally. So that was a memorable, challenging shoot just because I realized the power of nature is not to be messed with. <laughs> no, definitely. <laughs> one other one, which I'll mention that I want to talk about though, is a whale shot that I got where I flew for about three batteries worth trying to find whales, me and a friend. And it was basically like, oh, we'd, we'd given up because there was nothing there. It was the whale season, but it was a morning with quite often you go out, there's nothing, you can't find them, you can't see them. And then on the last battery, I was out there and all of a sudden I saw in the distance five spouts, like one after the other. And it was like, oh my gosh, wow, like you don't see five very often together. And they were moving fast. Like they were coming up the coast really quickly. And luckily I was already out there. So they basically just came into view and I could see where they were very easily, luckily. But the challenge was that I'd followed them up the coast and I was moving with them for about another two and a half, three kilometers, charging up the coast with these whales. And then I realized that I had no battery to get back. So <laughs> I actually, unfortunately, had to turn around and stop filming them. And I just got back in time. I've literally just landed with like 1% battery left, like nearly lost all of this epic footage and all of these photos to the sea, like claim my drone. So yeah, that was another scary one. Oh boy, living on the edge, right? I have to admit, I would probably, in the first story that you told, just I would probably have, by the time the drone was gone, would have already started browsing for a new drone on the web <laughs> instead of hunting it down. So, so kudos to you and your perseverance here to, to get this thing back. Do you still have this drone? No, I've sold that one. I actually crashed that one into a lake. <laughs> and then you sold it. <laughs> Yeah, and then so I dried it out and it still worked. I posted it online and said, look, this drone's been in the lake. It still flies. I put the price right down, like not like quite affordable. 
And someone messaged me that very day and was like, I've just crashed my drone. It's in a thousand pieces though. And I need it for a shoot. I'm going to New Zealand tomorrow. Can I buy this drone? And like we did the exchange and yeah, drones are, uh, they're all fun and games until you crash them in a lake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My only experience with a small drone was a couple of weeks old and then I crashed it right into a tree and that is my story with a drone. So <laughs> Is there a piece of art that you created that has a very special meaning to you or that has a backstory that you would like to share with us? Yeah, so this one is, for me, a piece called Offshore, which is actually on Super Rare at the moment. That is sort of like a, the beginning for me. It's almost like my genesis in telling my story through art. It's a very personal one. And the ocean, for me, is very significant in my life for a lot of reasons. My father shared the love of the ocean with me as a young boy, about five years old. I was surfing with him. You know, he threw me in the ocean as soon as he possibly could. And he was always this idol to me of someone who was very brave, going out in big surf and charging these massive waves on his board. And I really looked up to him for that. And so that was something that stayed with me now as a passionate surfer. I get out in the waves as often as I can and, and try to push the limits and surf waves as big as I'm comfortable with and I really enjoy that and getting into the aerial photography side of things I realized that that was part of my story was the ocean was just part of who I am and, and my life and that piece offshore I've crafted the description on that one in that it basically talks about the some of the challenges I went through as an adolescent where I kind of turned away from the ocean I, I was very much living on the streets <laughs> sounds crazy to say that now but Yeah, I was I was in a whole different life. I was involved heavily in a lot of negative stuff through a lot of violence and crime and things that, you know, I look back on now and think it's just I can't believe that I ever went through all of that. And so that piece has deep meaning to me because it's sort of like I've a lot of shame came around for me from that living that life and, and turning sort of like turning away from my morals and values and going down a very dark path with a lot of people that were in the same situation. And so now I feel like art to me isn't just about sharing beauty and sharing these beautiful images and, and, and being all positive. It's actually a very powerful resource to explore darker themes and to draw out things that were not really comfortable in my life that I've been through. And that came from a friend in the Web3 space. She has done the same thing. I'm going to mention her, Sarah Lindsay. She has used her art to talk about the positivity of art in getting through some tough times and coming out of her experiences. And she and I had some DMs and connected and I said, I've, I've had some experience. I, I, know, I totally relate to what you're doing and I really respect it. I think it's so courageous and then still not thinking in my head that I could possibly do that. I was commending her. And she said, you can do it. Just go for it. I highly recommend. It's really powerful. It's been so good for me to get these things out emotionally and to use art to do it. And so I thought, why not? Why not be brave and why not give it a go and explore that side of things? And so that's the first piece in a series that I'm, I'm waiting to. It's not so much about the sales, but I want it to be that I connect with the right person on that piece that understands or maybe needs to connect with me or others 
to be able to explore their own stories or wants to know my story or yeah it just feels like the right connection around that piece and then the next mint will come in that series i will tell more of my story and it will be sort of like a natural for me progression not something i'm going to rush and just be like pump out a series be like hey here's my story i want it to be a way to to get things out in a i don't know it's very hard to put into words i think it'll be more powerful if it's done in a way that i'm connecting with like-minded people and we can explore it together if that makes sense yeah where it's very a visually compelling piece on its own, but the story that you put in the description, and we'll put it in the show notes for everyone to see and to read. This gives, of course, a whole new dimension to it. As you said, it's it's not only about the beauty of the piece, but also the dark sides that you are exploring here. So this was what I was mentioning earlier with your descriptions that are very powerful. And to be honest, it's giving me like goosebumps when I read your story here and to see it together with this piece and yeah how was the feeling what were you feeling when you released this piece because I can imagine that one can feel a bit vulnerable perhaps but strong at the same time when you when you put it out so perhaps how would you describe it in your own words when you when you hit that mint button and put it out there to the world to see it was sheer terror to you i won't lie it was pure yeah max fear <laughs> <laughs> but it was important to send it. And I just thought, I'm going to be judged for this. I just thought in my head the whole time, I'm like, I'm probably going to lose respect and follows. And I had this voice in my head saying, this is a bad move. Your brand is happy beach, lovely sunrises and and the beauty of nature and all struggle to admit it was very hard for me to mint that piece. It was really difficult, but I'm glad I did it now because it's sitting there and It's like, okay, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't as scary as I thought. And I really do want to explore that side of things. And I do want to be braver in that regard. Because I think there's unfinished business. I think like as much as I've moved on in my life and I've built something that I'm really proud of, I'm so blessed to have what I have with my family. And I have a very positive life now. And art plays a big part in that. I think there's probably, like I said, that fear and that, Oh, I'm going to be judged. There's still probably a side of me that feels a little bit like I haven't completely dealt with some of those issues that were from that past side of me. So I felt terrified, but I'm feeling empowered now. Yes, I like it. I couldn't imagine that you would lose the respect of anyone for posting this. And if anyone unfollowed you for for posting your story and out there i think they were not worth uh, being followed in the first place so it makes it just more valuable to to connect here and kudos to you for doing this so now, now we've spoken about your art but how would you describe your style to someone who's never seen one of your photos or your videos i struggle with this because i have so many mediums that i like to express myself through so i don't think i have a style almost it's very hard for me to describe in a succinct way, but in the Web3 space, I think I'm known for very vibrant coastal scenescapes where it's almost hyper-realistic. I put a lot of effort into, like I said, creating a scene that expresses the feeling of being there, not so much the reality that the camera produces off the bat as a flat image. I like to tweak and play with the colours And it's, it's almost like fantasy for me. It's like surrealism. 
but it's still a recognisable real subject and there's a, there's always a lot of that goes into the composition. We're very, very picky about finding a subject, finding an interesting focal point in the scene because it's important to me that everything I do, everything I put out, it stands out. It has a, a wow factor almost. It's almost like, you know, I want people to stop scrolling and see my work or like so for me that's really important and that's my graphic design background that's my sort of all those rules and principles that I learned through my studies in design of balance and contrast and you know all of those basic principles I, I put them all into my photography work so the aerial side that I'm known for in the space I, that would I'd describe that as as having that style but yeah, there's so much more that I want to release. I've got animation, I've got graffiti, street art, I've got yeah, paintings and yeah, there's so much going on in my head that I, I want to explore. It's just a matter of time and being able to to put that stuff out. But the beauty is that we have time, right? So that's the whole thing I'm loving about Web3 is like, oh, I can really take my time with this and, and explore it and enjoy the process and there's no rush. No need to rush, right? And don't forget about the wrapping. Yes, That's coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Timbo. Timbo's going to be beatboxing. Oh, wow. And I'm going to be dro dropping the vibes. <laughs> I'm so buying that album. <laughs> I like it. How do you find inspiration for, for new pieces? Web3 has just like absolutely put a rocket into my inspiration. It's been incredible. At the moment, one thing I'll mention that you obviously know about is Click Create, where I'm getting exposed to incredible art weekly, plus a community of insane artists and, and collectors who just love art and everyone's vibing out on creativity. So yeah, Web3 is unstoppable source of inspiration. It's it's almost too much. You know, I have to kind of be like, well, hang on, this is too much art. <laughs> so yeah, definitely online, digital art is massive. But then for myself personally, in what I do, the ocean is the biggest inspiration. You know, I get down to the seafront and see waves peeling beautifully, making these beautiful shapes with a nice afternoon light or a beautiful sunrise. And it just charges me up. I just get fueled by it and stuff happens. Like, yeah, things just come out of that. It's almost like energy moves through me into creating something at that point. So yeah, the, I'd say the ocean is definitely a massive inspiration. And then street art is a big one as well. The hip hop culture I've been alluding to that, that is definitely still in my bones. You know, that, that was the original inspiration for me. I remember at eight years old, seeing guys with massive ghetto blasters on the street, spinning on cardboard, doing break dancing. And my mum couldn't pull me away. I was just like, what is this? You know? <laughs> and that stuck with me my whole life. I just got obsessed from there. Tone Loke, Run DMC, all those guys back in the day. I was bugging my parents as a little kid wanting Walkmans and and all of the Tone Loke cassettes. And they were like, This you can't listen to this. You're nine. You can't listen to Tone Loke. Like what? <laughs> I drove them crazy till they finally gave in and my dad started driving me around to all of the graffiti walls to check out all the street art. And yeah, that's been a massive one for me too. I can imagine a, a good dance off battle with Grand Dune breakdancing and you and Timbo rapping to it. So you got to make that happen one day. <laughs> Hell yes, I'm down for it. <laughs> How does your artistic process look like? 
So how do you find your motives and what amount of planning goes into your art and how does your post-processing look like? Perhaps you can give us a quick overview of how you're approaching this. Yeah, so that's been a progression in itself. And I find now I'm in a place where I've been doing it long enough with the aerial photography side of things that I'm known for, where I can go out and know whether I need to shoot or not. So I don't just launch the drone every session. I just, I'm very intentional about what I capture and what I get now, because I know that certain environments and, and situations with the clouds and the weather, it's not going to produce anything good if just through experience. So now it's more a very intentional around what I'm doing and, and how I go out and explore. And I guess exploration is a good one. So finding new places to shoot and check out, I'll check out Google Maps, I'll look at where other spots are that have been captured before and what angles have been captured and things like that. Do a little bit of research. I never used to do that. I used to be very much more into being in the moment and just getting out there and finding what I could find, which I'm glad I did that at the start. I think it was really important for me to find my own techniques and my own compositions and really kind of make that art my own. But now it's more about being time efficient as a dad. I have to plan a bit more and I have to make very efficient use of that one hour that I've got in the day or, or whatever. So yeah, a little bit of research, Google Maps, weather reports and charts, things like that. So if I look at the night before, have a look at the cloud cover situation and what that's going to look like in, in, for a sunrise, I know a, a good indication whether or not it's going to produce anything good. And then, yeah, once I've come away with something that I'm happy with, with the photography side or videos, often I have to sit on that for weeks or even months because I don't have a lot of free time. I'm doing, you know, I'm running my company, I'm doing Web3 and parenting all at once. And so I'm very, very limited in what I have to create, but I'll make sure that when I, when I do, it's in a situation where I'm really feeling like it. Like I have to be, I have to be really in the zone to sit down with my work and, and create. Otherwise it's sort of like I'm wasting my time if I'm not in the right headspace. If I'm stressed out, if I'm worried about work and money and things, it doesn't produce anything good. I find it's like I have to be really in a quite a positive mindset. I've had a good day. I'm feeling ready. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to look at some photos. And rather than watch a movie, I'll spend a couple of hours late at night. So like my wife goes to bed earlier because with the kids, we're both very tired. And I'll sit down and be like, no, I'm going to, and I'll sit up to 1am just editing photos, for instance. And it allows me to lock into a zone, a really positive zone where I can really enjoy that free time on my own and delve deep into the process. So yeah, to answer your question, I do a lot of post-production. I spend varied amounts of time, sometimes hours, sometimes weeks, some pieces years, <laughs> which might surprise some people. Yeah, like there's a piece that I've minted, a couple actually I've minted on foundation as my Genesis mints on the, their original contract, the first pieces I minted were my very best. I came in hot to Web3, so to speak. And those pieces took years to actually plan out and to execute just because of the, the lack of time that I had. And I wasn't happy with what I'd achieved. You know, I was working every night for months and months and months over a period of period. It's not actually years of work, but it took me years to get to a space with that piece that I was happy with. Yeah. How do you know when a work is finished then? If it takes you years and you're working 
an hour a day, then the next week again, and it stretches out over long periods of time. So how do you know when you're done? I don't think I'm ever done. It's a funny question because I kind of have to like just get to a point where I'm like, no, this is it. I'm happy now. Yeah, because I can keep going and going. I realize that with this edition series that I've just been doing this year, those waves that I've been capturing, that's been a real progression for me. And I find that when I'm doing the promo and I've got the piece ready and I'm happy with it, I'm, le I'm leading up and doing the marketing and things like that. Often the piece that I finally mint is hours and hours more work on top of that the piece that I thought I was happy with because I've realized that I spot little imperfections or, or that blue is not quite the right tint. And you know? so I will often go back in and the beauty of manifold now is crazy because you can actually update the piece as many times as you like. Right. So it's dangerous for me as an artist because I'm thinking like, Oh, when, when is it ever finished? You know, like I could literally go back in a year later and upload a new file to be a completely different piece almost <laughs> like, it is an interesting question for us. It's like, do you lock that piece in at a point or does it stay open? I had a chat with another artist about this recently, actually, and he was like, oh, maybe I should go back and recorrect the noise because there's this new AI tool in Lightroom where you can add denoise to your images now and it looks amazing. They look like it's incredible how good this tool is. And he was like, do I now go back and like readjust all my manifold mints with denoise? <laughs> I said, no. I said, no, don't do that. It's important to show progression. You've got to show progression in your work. I think it's important to draw a line in time and be like, no, that's the piece. So, but it is an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can I can relate. So manifold is updating manifold because it's a dangerous feature, and you shouldn't make too much use of it unless you really hate what you've done. <laughs> but then you shouldn't have put it out in the first place. So yeah, can imagine. I have to agree with you. So you've also done some collaborations, if I'm right, in the NFT space. How do you approach this? I mean, how does this actually work? We're seeing collabs all over the place, but is this more rewarding than working on your own? Or is this more work? And what kicks are you getting out of collabs? And, and how, how does it actually work? So a short walkthrough perhaps for us. Okay. Yeah. So it's different in each regard. It just depends on the other creative. And some of the collabs I've done have been with friends that sparked from conversations in DMs where we've just been chatting and we connect and vibe on the same kind of wavelength. And collabs really excite me. I get really kind of excited and a real kick out of feeding off other people's ideas. And that's sort of something that I loved about the my career in that we would sit around and there'd be a bunch of people throwing ideas up and that would go, oh, that would trigger another thought of mine and it would just snowball. And the whole concept would get more and more powerful and, and more engaging because of all of this creative energy flowing in through multiple sources. So for me, it's like I've got my own ideas and I've got my own way of expressing things. The next thing I know, I see someone else doing something. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Wow. Like I get really charged up. I'm like, I love what you did there. And that triggers thoughts in my head of like, what if we did this? And so for me in the NFT space, having the resources and the availability to connect with all these other artists, I'm like, why not go for it in that space? Like, let's do, let's do as much. For me, I'm like, I want to do as much as I can in that space. It's just a time restraint that's, that's kind of drawing me back on that because it's really, it is an intense experience. Like when you said, how does that work? Each party has to be available and each party has to 
do additional work to what they're already doing and their own art. So it's intensive, but it's very rewarding. So it's worth it. I spend like I said, very late nights where I'm up, uh, really slaving away. Like on one of the collabs you've seen, the Jimi Hendrix piece, you might have seen that. That was a really, really good one for me because I was gifted the opportunity. Really, I felt like it was a gift to work with the photographer, the photographer who shot that iconic image of Jimmy. His estate came into Web3 and they've created that project. And I got involved through a friend initially who then said, look, you've been amazing at helping me out with this and you've played such a strong role in the project. I want you to be an artist who works on one of the Jimmy pieces where I got I got given the photo rights, all licensing rights to then bring it to life in the way I saw fit, which was just unreal. You know, it was so, so cool to have that opportunity. And I'm really proud of that work. I spent a long time getting that piece right. And that was sort of the genesis of my animation into the space as well. I do that for work. I do a lot of animating and motion design. And I was able to take a photo and bring it to life in sort of like a 3D street art style. And it's Jimi Hendrix. Like, how cool is that? So, yeah, I'm really excited to do more in the future. I was able to do a remix for the Click Creative team recently, which is the same thing with that animation concept. Got this one. I like it. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah, I get a real supercharge on creative energy from doing that. One more I just want to mention actually is with the balded photographer. He's just changed his name back to Chris. He does splash photography and we've connected not only through art, but in real life as well. I've actually met up with him a couple of times and he's a really great guy. He's found art through COVID, just like Julio that you interviewed recently. He really sparked my creativity through what he does because I could see what it, how he does it in the process. And I was like, got me, oh, you need to do slow-mo video of what you do. And I got really excited about what he does because I wanted to do it too. <laughs> so being able to take his photography and animate it was really rewarding for me in that regard. I got to I got to play a little a little role in what he does, which was really cool. All right. I can sense your the energy that you're radiating right now talking about this. I like that. So doing doing things out of outside of what you're normally doing, ex gathering experience. And yeah, it feels like you're igniting each other's creative spirits when you're collaborating. So I might might have to try this one day too. Let's find someone. Yeah, I recommend it. It's it's really fun. It's really enjoyable. It's hard work though, like I said, it's not easy, but it's very enjoyable. Oh, and if you could collaborate with any artist, living or dead, who would that be and why? Oh man, so for me, it's actually a German guy, a graffiti artist, and he goes by the name of Dime, D-A-I-M, not in Web3, not even creating art anymore, I don't think. I haven't seen his work But the stuff that he did in the early 2000s was just mind-blowing. 3D stuff. He would do whole buildings in this 3D motif murals that were just extraordinary. And I own a couple of prints that I was able to get offline. I'm not even sure if they're authentic, though. But, yeah, if I could meet Dime and collab with, collab with him or her, I would be absolutely over the moon. That would be like a bucket list kind of stuff. Oh, those are insane. I'm just looking at them right now. We're going to put a, a link in the show notes to Mirko Reiser, he's called. And these pieces are really, really, really insane. Yeah, it's audio only still our podcast. So I'm going to put it in the show notes for everyone to see. 
This is cool. This is physical art, essentially. So what is your opinion on physical art? Have you explored this path for yourself? I know that some Web3 artists have started to sell physical prints and even physical prints only using Manifold, for example. So you're minting essentially a physical piece that you're getting or a token that uh, makes you eligible to get a physical print sent to you. So they're turning around digital first and then returning to physical first now. So what are your thoughts on physical art? I see some pieces in the background there that you have. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's a Kim Faced original he sent me. It's a, as far as I know, one of one print. I bought that as an NFT and he sent me the A2 piece. And that was a gift from someone I onboarded into NFTs. And he was so stoked to connect that he just gifted me that, that print, which was very cool. And then I've got a Lola Hubner as well, which I'll show you one sec. I've actually got a couple of Lola's pieces, but she does aerial photography of salt lakes in WA, which are just mind-blowing. That's one of my own from my street art days. You can see the oh yeah, you can see the Banksy influence there with the stencil art. <laughs> so yeah, I do love physical art. It's a big part of my my life. I've got a lot of work printed that from I've got Banksy's. I've got I've got a very large collection of physical art that I need to frame that is in a sealed container, hopefully not being damaged. <laughs> But I, yeah, I'm obsessed with physical art. I think it's beautiful to have that showcased on a wall. That's where I sort of started out with my work. I painted a lot of stuff, vinyl records. I did a lot of stencil art on vinyl, which I really liked. And people were quite into that. They, I've sold quite a few works that way, had a few gallery shows which was really cool because I got invited to do them and I was kind of like terrified. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to be at a show and exhibit my work. Like I was really uncomfortable with, with putting myself out there like that at the first time. It was terrifying, but I was just really quite honored by the fact that people liked what I did and, and bought pieces, you know, that blew my mind back then. It was, that was a long time ago. So yeah, I think physical art has a real powerful role to play in what, what artists do, but also in communicating and expressing ideas. You know, it's digital art is great as well. I love both equally, but especially seeing massive scale artworks physically, it's really impressive. It just, it's something about it. When you see the scale of a whole building painted and people are able to visualize it and put it up at that size for me, like I mentioned Dime earlier, just it gives you goosebumps. It's kind of like, You can't really comprehend how how it's achieved and yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah, I really like that too. And it has somehow web free or being here has also reignited my love for, for traditional art and started collecting a little bit, mostly photographies or being sent some some pieces that I minted as NFTs too, but the wall space is limited. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Got to choose wisely. I was going to ask whether you exhibited in, in real life galleries, so you did. When was this? And Australia only, I guess, right? It was in Australia, yep. So it's probably around 2004, 2005. I was about 25. So I connected with my now wife through art. We both were studying design together. And we moved in together pretty quickly after we got together. We completed our studies and sort of gone our separate ways and then reconnected later. We moved in together and started painting in the garage. That was our studio. We were renting and we just turned a garage into an art studio. Very small space, but was just obsessed with getting out there and, and doing that together. And then I quickly kind of put together a body of work 
that was quite extensive. There was a lot of canvases, a lot of vinyl records, as I mentioned. It was growing very quickly. And then, yeah, a, a local cafe where I saw they had some art on the walls and I said, what's the go? Like, how do you choose who you display? And they said, oh, it's just up to you. Like, we don't take any cut. You just put your art up and you can you feel free to you know, tell me when you want to put your stuff up. And I was like, oh, okay. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was my first experience. I went in there and I did that after the show went down. It was my turn to go up. And yeah, I sold a couple of pieces and it really opened my eyes to the possibility that it's not just these people who end up in massive galleries around the world, these famous people. It's it's people like myself who are just willing to have a go and, and put their stuff out there and see what people think. And from there, I connected online. I, eventually, over time, I became connected with a lot of art communities with MySpace and Facebook. And from there, I got invited to go into bigger shows and, and group shows with the street art theme, with the stencil art and the graffiti art style. I think I got invited to do a charity show where we all were given a skateboard and we had to put our style onto these skateboards. And it was just hundreds of skateboards all around this gallery all being auctioned off for a charity uh, donation and yeah my, mine sold straight away and from there I just kept trying to exhibit as much as I could back then because I had the time you know I had the free time to just pump out artworks weekly I could I could create a lot of art on mass and so I was able to do these shows back then which was really cool whereas now I think it would take me a year to prepare for a show <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Are you, were you keeping it very separate because so you, you were painting a lot, illustrating? So I'm going to ask you, so where are those paintings? Where can we see them? Do you mind sharing them? Perhaps not here, right, on this audio podcast, <laughs> but I would encourage you. I'd just love to see. I have a stack of work here. I've sold a lot of it, which I was very fortunate to do. I didn't put my prices high. Like I didn't I think I struggled a lot with my own value as an artist. I kind of, I, to sell a work for $50 back then, I was just like, what? Who's willing to pay 50 bucks for this? You know, when really I'd spent hundreds of dollars on the materials creating it. Like my, my mindset was a bit backward back then. I was very insecure, I think, around and what my own value meant. That's something I've struggled with my whole life as a creative. I've, I think that's sort of ingrained into artists a lot through society. It's like, you don't have value, you know, you think, what are you doing? Don't be an artist. You can't make money doing that. You know, it's this whole mental barrier that I had back then. So I sold all the work, but I didn't make any money out of it. I didn't get rich, that's for sure. You know, it was like very minimal profit. I, I might have covered materials over the years. So it's a lot of it's gone to homes, but I'm really proud of that. It is around my office though. I've got like, I can show you a lot of different stuff. Yeah, we're looking at the vinyl record threat. Vinyl records. I, I've kept a few of my favorites that I wouldn't part with. Was this a Metallica record? Oh, Metallica, was it? No, Inter Interfusion. I don't know. Lawrence Welk and Myron Florin. These are like very old, old tunes. I was gifted a box of records by a, a relative. And then I found a whole bunch actually on the side of the road one day. I was driving down the street and I saw boxes of records just outside someone's house in a, in a throwout. I quickly pulled over and started stacking <laughs> in the car. And these other guys pulled over and were like, I spotted that first. And I nearly had to have it like a oh, no. wrestle match for all this vinyl. So yeah, I've got I've still got boxes of this vinyl that I could paint. I was very lucky to to have that. But yeah, my family have a lot of it and friends. A lot of my old buddies that I used to hang out with skateboarding back in the day were really stoked to have art on their walls. And 
you know, I'd go into my friends' homes to, to catch up with them and my art would be all over their bedroom walls and that was just a lot of stoke for me as a, as a kid. As a young guy, just people, you know, my friends really valued my, my work. That was cool. I love to hear this. And you do, as you said, you have a family and young kids. So a lot of Web3 artists are still so young that they don't have their own families yet. So on the one hand, that gives them an advantage because they can be there all the time online grinding. And on the other hand, what's on the other hand? What advice would you give other Web3 artists that are about to start a family or have just started with a family? Yeah, for me, it's probably understand those barriers, like try to wrap your head early on around the fact that you are going to have those challenges because Web3, as I mentioned earlier, can be all-consuming and it can really take over very quickly if you allow it to because it's so positive. There's so much enthusiasm, positive energy, great people to connect with and you can very quickly go down the rabbit hole of, of being obsessed with that side of things and family are more important they need you a young family for sure like little kids they really need all of your time so i think the advice i would give is to how do i say it fuck the fomo <laughs> like don't get caught up in that fomo mentality and resolve yourself to the fact that yeah there are people that can be there more than you and that's okay I built a community connection with a lot of people very fast because I was able to push myself to the limit of being online, but it was detrimental to my health and it was detrimental to my family. I'm not going to lie about that. You know, I think there's a regret on that side of things. I'm really stoked on the on the one side that I have this amazing network now and I'm, I've been able to, to meet great people, but I probably would do it differently if I had my time again because I sacrificed for that. And now I'm getting to the point where I realize that it's okay. I can take my time. I don't need to rush and I don't need to feel this fear of missing out all the time. It's, it's rubbish. It's not, it's not reality. There's always going to be stuff you miss out on and that's okay. Yeah. And your family is the reality and yeah, don't burn the candle at both ends. This is very important, important lesson, which we all have to learn and to remind ourselves again and again. It's not something that comes naturally or automatically. And you're caught in the enthusiasm here and FOMO, as you said. Yeah. David, what is a skill that everyone should have? I think for me, it's probably trying to find a way to be more confident in yourself. So working out ways to sort of charge yourself up a little bit and prop yourself up mentally when you hear that voice that's there. I mean, for me, it's it's a challenge that I go through all the time of like, you know, we, we all get that imposter syndrome as creatives I think I mean that's what I understand through connecting with others is that it's always the same with other people that oh, I'm not good enough you know that's for someone else to succeed in I, I'm never I'm never going to make it blah 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 and the skill that I've got through connecting in web3 has been confident in building my self-confidence so I've been gifted that in a way through others but I've had to work at it as well so jumping on podcasts like this this is not my natural state i get very nervous and anxious and jumping into spaces on twitter as well people say what are you talking about you talk so naturally you're amazing at it and they give me all this kudos and but realistically it's like it's really intense for me to put myself out there but the more i do it the more confident i become so i think i don't know if it's a skill but more a practice i think everyone should push the barriers a little bit and push themselves out of their comfort zone to 
to build their own self-confidence and then put them, their art out there as well more and more. That's very solid, David. I like that. So if you could tell your 2020 self something, what would that be? <laughs> I think we all know in the crypto space what that would be. <laughs> Buy more crypto. <laughs> I think it would be to focus on family and to be much more focused on real life and, and the important things around mental health and con building connection and relationships in the physical world. That would be my biggest advice to myself. I think that would have set me on a, a much better path that I'm now coming around to now. So yeah, that would be the, the probably the, the best advice I give myself because it's just so much more rewarding to have those strong connections with your friends and family close to you. Obviously, digital friends are fun too. And, and you know, it's a lot of positive there. But if you sacrifice the other for the one, it's it's not a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, how about your 2025 self? Would you like to tell 2025, David? Bravo. Well done. Like, congratulations for sticking it out and working so freaking hard. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping I'll be telling myself. I'm looking forward to that day, honestly. I think that the next few years are going to be quite positive the way I see it, what I'm envisaging with my own goals, but also for the Web3 space particularly. I think we're going through a rough time right now, but we've seen, I think you, you and myself have seen some highs and some lows and, and there's probably some really good stuff coming along. Hopefully what we all envision as well or the power of Web3 technology coming to pass, that would be really nice. So as an Australian, David, do you shave with a bush knife or a razor? <laughs> I don't shave. Oh, that's an easy eight. <laughs> I have the clippers. I have the fancy. I cut myself too much on the shaver and the knife. I'm no good at that. So I just, I look about like 12 years old if I actually get rid of all the stubble. Like you can't, no one can see me, thankfully. Yeah, if I go right back to to the smooth baby face, I look very, I look very I've got a real baby face, so I always keep something, keep a little bit of stubble on there, so I look like a, an actual man. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so how many drones do you have, and how many drones does your wife think you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you turn that into bikes, it would be a different answer, because I'm bike-obsessed, and my boy is on the path to becoming bike-obsessed as well. In bike land, the number of bikes that you should own is N plus one. So <laughs> that's the correct amount of bikes. But no, I only have one drone. I'm very I'm very efficient with my camera gear and, and my purchasing. I'm just not in a position to be investing heavily into tech, unfortunately, because I would go mental if I was. I would literally have all of the toys. I think you can see my camera behind me. That's my workhorse A very expensive setup, but worth every cent. And I've paid it off in work. Everything I own in the tech land has to, has to somehow be justified as a business expense. So I only have the one drone, but I've had several over the course of my career and I've enjoyed the progression in the tech. I was very fortunate actually to connect with Timbo, who I keep mentioning because he's such a legend. He has a connection with DJI Global now as through his efforts of being such a hard worker in the aerial space. He was fortunate he already had a drone and they sent him out one to test. He was able to keep. So I benefited from that. Like it, it, I didn't get it for free, but I got a very good deal from from my good mates. So, and it's the latest, one of the latest Mav3 upgrades. So yeah, it's very good. It's a really good drone. I'm really happy with it. All right, solid. <laughs> Who on Twitter should we follow? 
So who on Twitter should we follow? Oh, there's so many people that I'm connected with that are just incredible artists and are just amazing in the space. And I have to shout out the Aussies because I don't think we get enough representation. So I'll shout out Ange Semark, Ren McGann, and Kim Feast. They're three oceanographers that have been amazing for me to connect with and really inspire me in what I do. They jump in the water in some insane conditions. Like you've seen that Kim face behind me. They capture waves in an incredible way that is just mind-blowing and you'll just enjoy checking out all their art. So cool. And someone else who comes to mind that's been really supportive of me from the mental health side of things and we've met up actually in real life is Renee Campbell. She captures amazing floral abstracts through macro photography and she has an incredible story to share so and last but not least very much not least is and i've left him last just to annoy him because i know he'll be listening to this and i just wanted to mess with him because that's what we do jason o'rourke his handle is jason o'photo and he has been with me from the very beginning on this journey we connected very early on when I signed up to Twitter and started jumping into NFTs. And he's been a massive support to me all the way through. I can't talk highly enough of the guy, to be honest. He, he's just been incredible. And his photography is amazing. That's one of the reasons we clicked is because he started to show me his and I started to show him mine. Had a lot of banter and a lot of fun. But yeah, his work just really stood out to me. He has some incredible, incredible images that he minted. And yeah, we've just had a lot of fun on the journey together. And so definitely, I think he'd be someone worth getting on board and, and having a chat to. And everyone should definitely follow Jason. Oh, yeah. These are awesome choices, David. Thank you. We'll put all of those into the show notes. And one more question. Um, who would you recommend I should invite as one of my next guests into the show? I think you should invite Renee Campbell, honestly. I know she'll hate me for saying that because she was probably not going to want to do a podcast, but <laughs> I think she has an incredible story to share and, and she needs a bit of a spotlight. That's amazing. So it was so great talking to you today, David. And thank you so much for being on the show and taking all the time that you took today and speaking with me. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Theo. It's been great, mate. I'm so glad to connect with you, man. I just want to say I'm so grateful that we've been able to connect in the space and, and chat about art and, and just have a laugh and keep the positive vibes rolling, man. It's been very cool. Could the drummer have some, y'all? Could the drummer have some more? Said the drummer ain't had none in a long time. Come on, drummer. 16 bars in a cell made of plaster A plaster whose sermons a laughing disaster uh, Who's father? That's right in the brotherhood of lightsabers And out of space races and not a flight swatched lasers His face is out, the next stage is doubtful yep. A mouthful of words, my own mouth be powerful You won't drown fool, sinking deeper in the sea's breast Motherhood of typhoons, killer bees of the quest He's next as I stay up on the train layup Nice sort of exports are waiting uh -uh. for the spray up Yo, my brain don't stay up, not perforated edges So hard off the coals makes it kind of Black peppers. We play the whole field, you would best make the benches Benson and hedges and back to the school Yo, you rack off the stews on a rap like a fool Only can to your story and stack horrible Haggard and cold, yo, and mark me sorrowful A bastard child is running riot and quiet And quiet, do with the mind frame set on tolerance We like straight dog, we even bark off the hollering Of war monger, we flesh for raw hunger I ride with the lightning and more than Thor's thunder
Bob's a witch doctor Mixing brews off apocalypse Poison cellar Stains of red wine upon a lip Preposterous yeah. Topping this is impossible It's horrible And it gets slain Blade follow through Fucking oracle Master mazed in the mind off The cobwebs on my shoulder I need the freaking grind off Sometimes music takes time Good music I'm trying to make good music